News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. And for a lot of us, the COVID-19 pandemic was difficult for our budgets, for our economy at home, for our budgets at home. It was tough, right? Like It was tough to balance that checkbook, if that's what people still do. Well, the Bank of Canada does. And a new report from C.D. Howe Institute estimates that the Bank of Canada could lose billions over the next few years uh, because of what went on during the pandemic. Let's find out what went on with this. Trevor Tom joins us now, a professor of economics at the University of Calgary and co-author of the C.D. Howe Institute report. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's talk about this report. So what is it that you looked at exactly? So we look at the Bank of Canada's finances over the next couple of years. As you as you noted, they've started now incurring a loss. Uh, their expenses are larger than their revenues. And that's never happened since the bank started operations back in 1935. So it's a pretty unique situation. Okay. And so how did they get into this spot? Well, when the pandemic started, they lowered their interest rate uh, all the way down to nearly zero right in uh, late March of 2020. And when that happens, they're kind of out of ammunition, if you will. So they turn to some unconventional policies to try and stimulate economic activity and also something that Canada's never done, which is called quantitative easing. When they go out into the market and purchase a large quantity of government bonds, in in their case, about $400 billion worth. And what that does is leads to large reserves in uh, the banking system. And those reserves stored at the Bank of Canada earn interest. And so in 2022, when interest rates rose dramatically, that made expenses at the bank rise dramatically as well, outstripping their revenues. Okay, and so we've never, I know we all have felt like we've never seen interest rates go up so quickly before, but is this the impact of that? Exactly right. Interest rates in 2022, they started the year uh, at the Bank of Canada rate of 0.25%, and they ended the year at 4.25%. So a full 4% increase in less than a year is pretty dramatic, not completely unprecedented. We've seen that. Uh, in the past, but you have to go back decades to find a comparable situation. And with rates rising so rapidly, uh, and because deposits at the Bank of Canada, largely by banks, uh, they earn interest. So when interest rates rise, uh, those expenses rise as well. Okay, so how does the bank get itself out of this? Well, it's going to take some time. Our our report kind of goes through a number of scenarios, and it looks like these losses will continue until 2024, potentially late 2025. And how they get out of it is a a really interesting question. I think, well, time is one, and they'll accumulate the losses for a while. Uh, But then how we unwind those losses later is kind of the open question that the government needs to uh, make some decisions on. You know, because we've never had a loss before, uh, the legislation around this, the procedures around how the bank operates, they've never had to deal with it. So there's some some unknown open questions right. that the government is going to need to decide like, on. What do you mean by unwind those losses and, and what could the government do? Well, what I mean by unwind is they'll be accumulating these losses on their books and the Bank of Canada will very soon, particularly this month, have negative equity, like their liabilities will be larger than their assets. 
And, and for a private company, that's problematic. Uh, for the Bank of Canada, they can still do their operations, but at some point they'll return to profitability. And then do they use those future profits to shrink their accumulated losses, pay them back, if you will? That's kind of what Australia is doing, what the United States is doing. It's just not clear at the moment whether Canada's going to do that as well. I, I, I suspect they will, but the government hasn't said. Right. Is there any indication of when the government will talk about this? You know, no. I, I, to be honest, I would have thought they would have said something a few months ago. Maybe they're waiting until the budget. You know, that's a time for governments to announce big uh, measures, especially financial measures. And so that would be uh, a couple of months from now. Okay. So the... It, has any country dealt with this kind of fallout? Like, what, what is the kind of plan that you've seen in other areas like the United States? Well, we have seen central banks lose money elsewhere in the world before. Uh, it's not completely uncommon. Usually it's related to central banks who trade in their currency, you know, who are trying to enforce a peg in their exchange rate. Uh, that's not Canada's case. We are seeing losses right now in other central banks, the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, the United States as well. And this is a first for, for them. The U.S. hasn't seen a loss before. Uh, and what happens in their case is that future profits will be withheld from the government until they've offset all of the losses that accumulate. So I suspect that's kind of what Canada is going to do. Uh, do, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. Right. Are there lessons here, Trevor, then for how this kind of unprecedented situation could be dealt with if it pops up again in the future? So I think it probably will pop up at some point in the future. It's the first time for Canada to engage in quantitative easing, but it's not the first time that other central banks have. And at some point, we're going to have a, a, a deep recession uh, for one reason or another, and the central bank is probably going to need to resort to a tool like this. And so I think some of the lessons are maybe how to engage in quantitative easing. Do we do it in the way that we did this time, just by printing money to purchase bonds? Or do we think about other ways uh, of implementing QE? And I guess we don't need to go down that road, but there's there are some other ways for central banks to have done this that didn't expose them to uh, financial risks. And I think at least among Research economists, those are ideas that are being uh, batted about, and we'll see if governments adopt them. We will see. Well, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. You bet. My pleasure. Appreciate that. Trevor Chomb is the professor of economics at the University of Calgary and co-author of this C.D. Howe Institute report looking into the economics of the Bank of Canada right now, where the bank uh, could lose billions of dollars over the next few years uh, because of what happened during the pandemic and dealing with the rise in interest rates, the very steep, sudden rise in interest rates and waiting for the federal government to say something about how the bank is going to deal with this. This is Mornings with Simi. So is Blue Monday a real thing, or is it something that's just made up? Because you're going to hear, see, read a lot of stories today that dub this Blue Monday the most depressing day of the year. But where did this, where did this come from? Well, this about 20 years ago, I guess, when it really started to gather steam. And I, I also look at that at the advent of like social media and people started talking about it and it gets passed around. 
But way back when somebody wrote a story about how this the third Monday in January was the most depressing day of the year because the weather, because it's about the time that people are getting their bills in from Christmas and just generally low motivation levels. But do we actually feel that at this time of year? Well, joining us now is Theodore DiCosco, who's Associate Professor of Mental Health and Aging at the Department of Gerontology at Simon Fraser University and Research Fellow at the Oxford Institute of Population Aging at the University of Oxford. Good morning. Morning to you too. Are you feeling good today? I am, yeah. Now I've got a six-month-old that's keeping me up, but uh, all is well. So you're not, you're not feeling the Blue Monday then? No, it's it's a, it's Blue Monday is an interesting thing because the seasonal affective disorder is absolutely a thing yes. where there's depressive uh, symptoms associated with lower light, and that is definitely an actual concept. But the Blue Monday thing is, uh, unfortunately, it was a bit of a PR stunt that has uh, taken on a life of its own. And in what uh, way was it a PR stunt? In that it was literally developed by a UK travel company in coordination with a PR company. And they were trying to look at travel trends and how looking at how they could uh, basically further their own uh, agenda as a business. And they brought in a psychologist and paid him about 1,200 pounds to develop a air quotes equation for the most depressing day. And it is incredibly flimsy. It includes things like the time to when your New Year's resolutions have failed, your <laughs> low motivation, and this sort of thing. So it is, it's, um, it's a lot of pseudoscience that's really taken on a life of its own. Oh, see, that's the thing. And so do we need a day to make us feel even worse? I mean, that's the thing. Why do you think we, we've grabbed onto it? Why do you think it's held on? I think it's good marketing. No, I think that it's, uh, it's got a snappy title. And uh, it's, uh, I think people, this sort of confirmation bias. It's like, oh, yeah, I do feel pretty terrible on this third, day, third Monday of January. And so people can, it, it resonates with people even if it's not an actual thing. And, uh, yeah, as I say, it's definitely good marketing for, for companies. Right. What is the downside to this in theater? What is the downside to even calling this Blue Monday? Um, I think it, it can normalize feelings, um, or I think it can make things, or trivialize feelings, I guess. If people are feeling down, they're like, oh, yeah, it's just Blue Monday. I should be feeling depressed. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, being aware of your own mental health and things, and if there are changes, not blaming it on some um, day that was cooked up by a PR company. Uh, and I think being more in tune with your mental health is something that people should have, and this may trivialize it a little bit. Right, because it is natural, I guess, with this time of year, people need something to look forward to. Um, and does this just make it worse, do you think, for some people? It might, you know, um, I think that's certainly possible. I think that, it, or it can, yeah, as I say, sort of trivialize it. It's like, oh, yeah, it's not me, you know, having these depressive symptoms. It's, you know, it's just Blue Monday. That's the reason for it. And so it could be that as well. How can we fight that? I think there are a, a few things that people can integrate into their lives that um, are really helpful. I think that, you know, looking at your diet, trying to eat healthily, uh, uh, being physically active is, is a huge one. And if code has taught us anything, it's the importance of social connectedness. And I think that if you can roll in a few of those together, say going for a walk with a friend, you know, having a chat, and particularly if you can do that outside in some green space, it's really ticking a lot of boxes and trying to uh, stave off some of that. Um, right. You mentioned seasonal affective disorder. I've known a couple of people who this has really had a tough, tough impact on them. For people who suffer from that, what do they need to do? 
Well, I think that it's important to look at, you know, the, the degree to which they're being affected by that. If it's something that around 2 to 3% of Canadians have seasonal affective disorder that really impacts their day-to-day living, and if it's having a, a material impact on your capacity to do your job or your relationships, uh, that may be a time to look at uh, seeking out help from a mental health professional. Um, but if in the sort of the more sort of subclinical realm, I think that taking steps in your own life, like the physical activity, um, social connectedness, that can really be uh, an effective mechanism for trying to, to ward off some of these symptoms. But as I say, if it, if it escalates and it's really having a negative impact on your life, it, this might be a time to uh, look at seeking help from a mental health professional. Well, Theodore, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. Thanks for having me. Good luck. That is Theodore D. Costco, who's an associate professor of mental health and aging at the Department of Gerontology at Simon Fraser University and also research fellow at the Oxford Institute of Population Aging at the University of Oxford. Do you believe in Blue Monday or do you think, nah, forget that. I've got stuff to look forward to. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I am so jealous of our next guest. His name is Bruce Ives, and he just set a record with the Guinness World Records. Just happened. Actually, they officially received word on January the 9th. Now, Bruce is 82 years and 43 days old. Why is that significant? Well, I'm going to tell you right now because Bruce is joining us. Good morning, Bruce. <laughs> how are you today? Oh, just fine. Just fine. Now, tell me, how did you get into the habit of doing handstands? Well, it. I learned how to do it when in high school in Leamington, Ontario, a long grade 10, I guess it was. And my teacher had us all, the whole class, do it. Uh, so then there was a, <laughs> a bit of a pause there over the years, and I started again with my grandchildren here on Haida Gwaii. I would have them on my birthday. We'd all, I'd try to get as many of my grandchildren to stand on their heads beside me. Could they do it? Because, Bruce, i got to tell you, I, I've never been able to do a headstand before, ever. Well, there is a, a little bit of a, a trick. You sort of, you have to get in a squatting position, put your uh, arms out just behind your knees, and then tilt forward so your head hits the ground on a soft spot, of course. And then you put your feet up. Well, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> <laughs> we know it's not easy, but so you performed a record-breaking headstand on 82 years and 43 days old. So you became the oldest man to ever do a headstand. How does that feel? <laughs> that was quite something. My granddaughter, uh, uh, Isabel Romas, uh, was the one who coordinated this and had me do it other than on my birthday. So, I And it was sort of fun. We had police, three policemen there, uh, a principal of a school. My wife was there, a couple other kids, and I did it. That's pretty impressive. How long can you hold it for? Uh, I did that one about 25 seconds, which is not a long time, but it's, it's longer. The, 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 uh, the record said I had to do it for at least 15, and I think it was around 25. But on, uh, on my birthdays with my other grandchildren, I'd done it for over a minute. What? <laughs> wow. Do you think there's benefit to this? Like, does it help keep you young? Not a bit. <laughs> Not a benefit at all. It's just fun, and it's bonding with my grandchildren. That's That was the nice part. Listen, also with some of your grandchildren, do you think, listen, you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> exactly. Wow, so you're going to keep doing this? Yes, well, I'm thinking about it. From my birthday is June 25th. 
I, I'm thinking about it, but I'll, I'm 82, almost 83. So I'll just see how I feel right now. I'm feeling fine, but I'm not going to promise anybody. Because <laughs> that would be that would be really something. You'd break your own record if you did it on your 83rd birthday. So, Bruce, when you do it, sometimes do you think, okay, maybe that might be the last one? Exactly. Every time I do it, it's the last one. I'm so lucky to, to be so healthy and fit. Uh, I can still climb on my roof to clean my chimneys out. I, I can help get my uh, firewood each year. I am really lucky. I'm exceptional, I think, for my physical health. I don't smoke. I don't drink to excess. I don't eat to excess. And I, I exercise a fair amount. So I think that's those are the ones that are keeping me fit. Do you wonder about that? I'm sure everybody asks you, Bruce, like, what is the secret? How do you stay so young? How do you do all this? And you go, I don't know. I don't know. I do this stuff. It seems to work. I, also moderation, I think. I think that's it. I don't overeat. I don't overexercise. I just, I have, I'm close to my family and I just take it easy. You live the life, Bruce. It sounds like you're a retired social worker too. That must've been a very rewarding career. Yes, it was. Yeah. Most of it was on the islands here. But um, yes, I did enjoy that. I was helpful to other people. I really enjoyed doing that. Yeah, I've had a pretty good life. So would you say that breaking a Guinness World Record was never something on your list? It was not. (laughs) It was not on my list at all. What was on my list was being uh, with my children, with my grandchildren, getting them involved in my life. And that was well, you have certainly done that, Bruce. Listen, congratulations. Thank you. And thank you so much for telling us all about it. Oh, you're welcome. That is Bruce Ives. He's a retired social worker, lives over on Haida Gwaii, and just happens to have set a Guinness World Record, just did it on January the 9th, at the age of 82 years and 43 days old, he performed a headstand. Yeah, a headstand. This is, he actually did it back on August 7th, but they just received the notification on January 9th that it is official that he has become the oldest man to ever do a headstand according to the Guinness World Record. I, I've never been able to do them. They have always vexed me. So shout out to Bruce Ives for being able to do that. That is impressive. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. Now that's the kind of happy story we need to hear about today, right? Somebody who's actually happy out there and having a great time. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been hearing about how some doctors are not happy with this new law, Bill 36, that changes the way health colleges in this province are regulated. So let's dive into this and find out why we are hearing that. Joining us now is Dr. Jennifer Lush, a family doctor here in BC. Dr. Lush, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Simi. Now, we know that this bill kind of was rushed there at the, uh, in November, at the end of that fall session. When did you first become aware of these changes? Sadly, the first I heard of Bill 36, and not just me, but many physicians, was after it had already been approved. I think uh, most of us had no idea that this was going through the legislature and certainly were not aware of the contents. Uh, This would apply not just to physicians, but many of the healthcare professionals that are affected by the bill. So is that why do you think we're hearing things now? Is it doctors like you are starting to find out what's happening? Absolutely, yes. Uh, you know, I think initially we thought, oh, well, you know, it's it's important that there be 
oversight of healthcare professionals and the public, you know, deserve protection. And, and this is perhaps just an effort to streamline that process. But as we delve into the details of this bill, which is 238 pages long and contains hundreds of clauses, the more we learn about it, the more we're alarmed we are at the potential implications for the healthcare of British Columbians, the potential uh, compromise of confidentiality of patient records, uh, the politicization of healthcare. And I think it really deserves a second look, and people need to ask very um, critical questions about what this bill is really bringing into law. Okay, yeah. Can you explain it to us then? Can you highlight some of the concerns there? Sure. Well, one of the big concerns is certainly the government-appointed boards. For the government to have the ability to fully appoint the board of a regulatory body opens up the possibility of that board making political decisions uh, of pushing a government agenda, and that is not in the best interests of health care for British Columbians. Uh, this this decision was opposed by many of the healthcare professionals. I know that a former president of the Doctors at BC wrote a letter stating her concerns with that plan and asking for Doctors at BC to have further input into the bill, and that did not occur prior to it being approved in legislature. Uh, the other very real concern that I think all British Columbians need to pay attention to is the potential compromise of confidentiality of patient medical records. Uh, the Clause 338 uh, states very clearly that the provincial health officer has the right to require persons or healthcare professionals to give records to the minister, amongst other uh, regulators. And this is something that we all should be concerned about. Okay. Now I know that the uh, the health minister did address that on Friday, saying that 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 is not that's not his belief of how that that operates. So what needs to happen here? Do you think to for doctors to be happier with what what this is all about? Well, certainly, what I just said to you was actually a direct quote from Clause 338.C. So if Minister Dix himself is not familiar with the details of the bill they've brought into law, that just adds further weight to my argument that perhaps we should reopen the bill, have a fair discussion, a public debate, uh, and then make a decision about it with full disclosure. So I think the sensible next step would be for legislature to do exactly that. Perhaps we can reopen the bill. There can be a public discourse. We can have input from the various healthcare professions as well as members of the public uh, and then make a, an informed decision about Bill 36. What are some of the consequences that might happen, do you think, if, if this continues on the way it is? Well, certainly, and, and very concerningly, given the healthcare crisis we currently find ourselves in BC, we are going to see healthcare professionals choosing not to come to the province and other healthcare professionals planning their exit strategies to leave BC. And this is not something we can afford. On a national uh, medical uh, um, journalism site, I saw comments from physicians elsewhere in Canada saying, why would somebody choose to be a doctor in BC? I know many wonderful medical professionals who are actually now applying for licensure in other provinces in the event that this bill, in fact, uh, goes continues to go through and compromises their ability to practice in BC. Uh, I know that uh, other healthcare professionals, not just doctors, have expressed that the bill that was brought in is vastly different from that which was anticipated based on the consultative process such as it was. 
So I think we all stand to, uh, you know, lose our health care providers if we do not see changes made to this bill. So when you say that it was vastly different, like what were doctors expecting? Well, that comment was actually not from a physician group. That was from another allied health professional body. Uh, I, you know, I, the, when Minister Dick says there was an extensive consultation process, uh, my understanding is there were about 4,018 online surveys returned. And I'm guessing that those surveys did not have a question. Are you in support of your you know, confidential medical records being accessible by the government? Uh, so, you know, I would love to see a copy of that online survey and see what, you know, what people were actually giving feedback on. Certainly, there were only 94 individual uh, letters from healthcare professionals and 38 members of the public. So to me, that's not extensive consultation. When many of the affected healthcare professionals were not even aware of the bill prior to it being passed, extensive consultation did not occur to the level at which a bill like this deserves. So what has the communication been like since it's been passed? Like, how are doctors finding out about it? Has there been official communication from doctors of BC? Like, where is your information? I would say not sufficient uh, communication yet. I think doctors of BC was probably caught sort of on the back foot. They are very busy dealing with the new PMA and the new payment model for family physicians. And, you know, now that they are becoming aware of it, I think they share my concerns and certainly with the government appointed board. Uh, but we're all trying to play catch up. Uh, I have done some reading of the clauses of my of the bill myself from uh the government website, uh, and then largely communication but amongst individual healthcare professionals as we each do our own individual research and we become you know, alarmingly aware of, of some of the details of this bill and the lack of transparency that has occurred. Right. So you were saying that like some changes, yes, are necessary then. So what do you think the government should do here? Well, I think certainly we have to make sure that the members of the public are protected, and I 100% support that. I think there needs to be better transparency, which this bill is supposed to bring into effect but does not. Uh, the bill says that the government does not have to explain its processes. Uh, so to me, that is not a transparent process. Uh, we need members of the public involved I would argue that we do not need a fully government-appointed board. That just, again, politicizes healthcare, which is not in the interests of British Columbians. So I think we need to reopen the bill. We need to look at the specifics. We need to make sure that our regulatory bodies are protecting British Columbians, but not at the expense of their confidentiality. Dr. Lush, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. Dr. Jennifer Lush is a BC family doctor concerned about Bill 36 passed at the end of the fall legislature session there. And doctors clearly finding out about it now and realizing they're not happy with a lot of what's in there. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, I know BC Lions fans were hoping that maybe this wouldn't happen, but you know what? You can't fault the guy for trying out, right? Nathan Rourke is about to become a Jacksonville Jaguar. 24-year-old Victoria native made that news official over the weekend, telling everybody he plans to sign with the Jaguars. He apparently had quite a few offers to you know, choose from on this for going down to the NFL, but his very short career with the BC Lions sounds like it is over, at least for now. Joining us now is Julia Caravetta, who's the BC Lions play-by-play analyst and, of course, former BC Lions quarterback himself. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you feeling about the news? 
Well, you know, I'm uh, I'm like everybody else, uh, you know, a little disappointed, but uh, you know, I'm I'm very happy for him. I know this was a, uh, you know, this is uh something that he's dreamt about uh, since he was a little kid and to get this kind of an opportunity uh, is obviously something he's been he's been hoping for and and uh um I can't help but be happy for him, but uh you know, a bit of me is very sad. Obviously, you know, I mean, uh, Nathan took uh, not only you know, he took the BC Lions by storm and, and the entire country by storm last year with with his performance. Uh, he was just an absolute joy to watch. And, um, you know, I think everybody's pretty disappointed that uh, they're not going to get another chance to uh, to see him play. But, um, you know, I think overall, I think everyone's pretty happy about uh, the opportunity he gets. That's so true. I think I feel exactly as you do. Is it? I there was so much hope for just this year, right? Watching him play with yeah. the Lions and people felt like we were really on to something there, didn't we? Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and I think, too, his story, too, right? The fact that, you know, he, he really just came out of nowhere, and I don't think anybody expected, you know, what Nathan did last year. And then the fact, too, that he was Canadian was such a great story um, that everybody was just enamored with him, and, and rightfully so. I mean, he just was just amazing last year. I don't, I, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and um, I can honestly tell you that I haven't seen a, a guy take the, the league by storm like that in a long, long time, in, in fact, ever. Yeah. Um, he was just incredible. So, but uh, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of BC Lions fans that are now become Jacksonville Jaguar fans. Yeah. Uh, I know everyone's going to be pulling for him. Uh, you know, he's such a great kid, and um, you know, you just you just you just want to see him do well. That was my thought exactly too. There's going to be an inordinate yeah. amount of interest now in the Jacksonville yeah. Jaguars. It sounds yeah. like though, Julio, he had a lot of teams that were interested in him down in the NFL. Yeah, you know what? Well, here's the thing, Simi, is that you know, in the NFL, everywhere. I mean. It, Quarterback is 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 a marquee position, and they're hard to find, right? They they, don't, they they're very very hard to find, especially good ones. Um, so you knew when he had the year that he had, and unfortunately it was it was you know um, marred by injury. He didn't get to finish the year the way he wanted to. Uh, he came back at the end, but he obviously missed a whole bunch of games in the middle there. Um, that you mean they're hard to come by. So you knew he was going to get a look. And uh, I think, too, the connection, too, with Jacksonville, I know a lot of people are thinking, well, Trevor Lawrence is there. You know, he's, he, he's, he was the number one pick overall a couple of years ago. He's entrenched as a starter. But I think what you need to realize, too, is that he went to a place where I think he really believes that he's going to get an opportunity to move into a position where he could, he could get some playing time if something happened through injury or whatever. And that's what you need. You need to have an advocate in your corner down there. And Henry Burris, who was, you know, one of the all-time greats here, um, uh, is is a, is a quarterback coach there. So the connection oh. to him, the connection to him, and here's the other part. Before Henry got hired in Jacksonville, he was hired by the Lions at the beginning of the year. He was a quarterback consultant, so he was here for a couple of months. Not very long, but he was here for a couple of months working with the quarterback. So he has a bit of a relationship with Nathan. So he kind of knows the kind of kid that he is. He has obviously his connection to the league. Right. Um, is is you know he knows what it takes to play quarterback. And you know when you that's what you need down there is you need to have someone in your corner, someone who believes in what you can do. And obviously his play is going to dictate you know how far this goes. But having that connection, I think, really helps him. I think that makes way more sense when you just described it like that, because I was wondering why Jacksonville, but you're right. When you have somebody who knows you and knows yeah. your potential and can talk yes. to the other coaches and talk to management about you, that's, yes. that's critical. That's huge. That is huge. And I, I can give you an example, too. Like when Jeff Garcia 
went down from Calgary, uh, uh, you know, uh, to to the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah. He had a great relationship with Bill Walsh prior to him, you know, I mean, through college and all those things. So when you have somebody in your corner, now, don't get me wrong. I mean, you still got to go out there and perform. You got to play. But having somebody in your corner, especially going down the NFL, is, is massive. And he's, you know, I mean, obviously, um, they, they he worked out for the whole staff. Like, that's another thing. When you get your head coach and general manager and you get everybody who's watching your workout and they say, hey, we like this kid, this is, uh, uh, let's do this, then you, you know that you have some people on your side. Um, whereas in a lot of other situations, you're working out for a player personnel guy, you're working out maybe for the assistant to the assistant general manager who's in charge of doing these kinds of workouts. And so, you know, to have that kind of support is, is clearly something that Nathan uh, wanted and and. and when you, you see it and you feel it, you know that, hey, this is the best situation that, that uh, is available to me. I was wondering about, yeah, the choices there because, you know, Jacksonville had such an amazing last game, and oh, yeah. including Trevor Lawrence. And I thought, boy, yeah. he's choosing to go there and compete with that guy. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, the other part, too, is that, you know, it, it gives you a foot in the door. And, again, it's about, it's about the opportunity. And, and when you go through these workouts, you get a feel for – who's really interested and who's, who's not. And so, you know, and the thing about Nathan is that he is meticulous about details. You know, he, he's a guy that is going to research. He is going to do everything that he can to, you know, to pick the right spot and, 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 and what's best for him. And I know it doesn't sound probably the best, but again, he, he probably gets the best feel and, and, and likes the coaching staff and, and thought to himself, Hey, this is going to be the best opportunity. And, and really, it, it is, it's a foot in the door. If that he is, plays well in preseason, yeah. you never know what can happen, right? Like, it, 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 there's so many things that can happen along the way now, but getting your foot in the door, getting this opportunity is, is big. Well, I guess we're all going to be watching now, Jacksonville Jaguars. Yeah. Julia, thanks so much for your time. Anytime. Thank you very much. That's Julia Carvetta, BC Lions play-by-play analyst, former Lions quarterback, talking about Nathan Work, 24 years old, Victoria native, BC Lions quarterback off to play for the Jacksonville Jaguars in the NFL. This is Mornings with Simi. Not something you see outside libraries very much, but a couple of hundred protesters outside a Coquitlam library over the weekend. And this was because of an event that was being held there. It was a drag queen story time event for kids. So you had people who were against it. You had protesters who were countering that, people who were in support of it. And I thought, boy, oh boy, how did we get to this point? Well, joining us now is Samantha Wink, the Coquitlam Public Library's communication manager. Samantha, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. How did things go on the weekend? Well, uh, fantastic, if we're being honest. When you're talking about that uh, several hundred people coming out, it was about 15 anti, and the rest were all there just to create a joyous environment of love and acceptance. So it felt a little bit like a big party. Right. There's so a lot of singing. Did, did the library, like, did you understand kind of the chances of something like that happening when you decided to go ahead with the event? Absolutely. This is the second time we've run the event. We ran one uh, last summer, which also had a protest and a countered protest, although probably about a tenth of the size. Uh, we had been monitoring all of our social channels. We had been in touch with other libraries who had held events before getting advice, in touch with the performer, and in touch with our local RCMP as well. So we knew that there was a chance. Uh, thanks to the unstoppable Connie Smudge, who arranged their own counter-protest, it was a 
a success. It was a very positive experience, I think, for everyone who attended. Can you give people an idea then, um, Samantha, so why put this event on? What was the thinking behind it? Absolutely. I think the thinking for all public libraries, and especially for ours, is to create a space where people are able to engage with their community in a safe way to model inclusiveness, to model kindness and acceptance, as well as promote a love of reading. What we saw through other events that were happening in the community and from feedback from our own uh, customers is that there was an appetite for an event like this. So we decided to move forward with it. And can you foresee other events like that being put on in the future? Absolutely. Um, Inclusiveness is one of our core mission statements, and we're always looking for opportunities to provide voices and spaces for people to learn about that. I can understand that for some organizations that might seem a bit intimidating, the idea, the concern that you might get a situation like that kind of unfolding outside. What, how did you deal with that? What was, what was the planning that kind of went into it? Uh, well, one of the first steps would be that we reached out to other libraries who had held these before. We wanted to know what they did, what they would do differently, and then just making sure that we had open communication channels between our local RCMP chapter our leadership, our uh, staff on the floor, as well as the performer, just to make sure that the event was as safe as it possibly could be for everyone involved. Um, So that was monitoring channels and forwarding any distressing messages to the RCMP to investigate. That was hiring additional security uh, day of private security so that uh, our patrons and our staff were safe. And it was having a very, very open channel with the RCMP. They came by the day before they did a site inspection and they were prepared for what it could be. Right. So would you say there's lessons here for other libraries? I think the lesson is that with the outpouring of over 300 people versus 15 against, the community wants things like this. They want a space where they're able to bring their families, be safe, connect, explore different uh, viewpoints. And that's what libraries stand for. So I'd really encourage organizations to put these on. Right. Okay. And what about for staff? That must be, I mean, you got to train your staff too, to be able to deal with some of this. Absolutely. We were pretty hands-on. Uh, there was a huddle the day of leading up to it. Uh, there was a lot of media training of just how to handle complaints, where they can forward them. There were check-ins with their team leads to make sure everyone was okay. Cause it can be distressing to get some of those high emotional yeah. uh, phone calls from people who are against the event. Uh, the staff the day of, they, they seemed fine. I mean, these are librarians. You ask any librarian or a librarian staff member around there, they're at the forefront of the community. A library is a space for everything, and you get every walk of life and every type of day that someone is having will walk through those doors. So they're, um, they're pretty prepared for everything. They're pretty amazing. And what is your message then to the community with all of this? I think our message to the community is just that... Um, Inclusiveness, kindness, and acceptance should be at the forefront of everything. And uh, to be curious about others. And a great place to be curious is your local library. Samantha, thanks for your time on that this morning. Thank you so much, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That is Samantha Wink, Coquitlam Public Library's communication manager, talking about the event they held over the weekend. Uh, that was a, a drag queen story time for kids. They uh, had done it before, they said. They did it again, and they did get a few hundred people there. You had some protesters, then you had many counter-protesters too, and you undoubtedly saw some of that. There was some heated action uh, outside. Global News cameras caught some of that, uh, and that's certainly where a lot of these headlines coming from. A little some pushing matches as well before police arrived on the scene for that library. They're saying they would be happy to do such an event again, too. 
This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for you to get involved where you can do a little good. And I tell you, this train station in BC, the people who support it, they could really use your support right now, too. We're going to learn all about this with the help of our guest, Ryan Allen. Uh, Ryan, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Uh, good morning, Simi. Tell me about the Historical Society and the work that you do. Um, first of all, the, the Tashmi Historical Society is the management um, society who looks after the Tashmi Hist- um, Sunshine Valley Tashmi Museum up here in Sunshine Valley. So we got involved with the Hope Station uh, back in the summer of 2020 uh, due to um, the District of Hope announcing that uh, the station would be uh, torn down, uh, unfortunately, due to inactivity in the building and some property issues. All right, and then what happened then? Did you decide we, we can't let that happen? Yeah, uh, what, how it all started was an amazing and energetic group from HOPE uh, called the Coalition for the Preservation of the HOPE Station House. They got involved uh, right off the bat. Uh, they were uh, conducting honkathons and walkathons and protesting uh, the notice of the demolition. Uh, we eventually got involved uh, due to the uh, vast and historically significant history that it House has with the Japanese-Canadian internment during the Second World War. All right, and so this is clearly a big deal because I see that even the, the council got involved in this too. Yes, uh, over nearly a year and a half of discussions and negotiations between uh, the Tashman Historical Society and the District of Hope, we finally um, made an agreement and, a, and we are purchasing the building or we have purchased the building from the District of Hope and there is plans uh, to now move the building uh, to a different location in Hope, uh, a wonderful, beautiful location, and then to completely rehabilitate the building uh, into um, the future museum, visitor center, and really a um, heritage and arts cultural hub for Hope. Now, I know you, you mentioned that you were involved in the Tashmi Historical Society, but I, and I've been doing some research on this, and I've been fascinated to learn so much. But tell me about that. I don't think a lot of people really know uh, that Tashmi was a Japanese-Canadian internment camp. Yeah, so Tashmi was actually Canada's largest Japanese-Canadian internment site during the Second World War, uh, which is now modern-day Sunshine Valley. So we're, we're only located 19 kilometers east of Hope on the Hope-Princeton Highway. And... That's why we got involved with the Station House, because uh, in 1942, everyone of Japanese ancestry were forcibly removed from the West Coast outside of a 100-mile restricted zone. Uh, and the Station uh, was the connecting hub. So nearly 9,000 Japanese Canadians who were forcibly removed from the West Coast ended up at the Station House uh, to get off the trains, to uh, to to be forced uh, onto the waiting trucks uh, to either be distributed to the other internment sites across BC or, in fact, 2,644 of those Japanese Canadians made their way up to Tashmi. Ryan, given that, why, why do you want to memorialize this place? Why do you want it to stay so significant? Well, I personally feel that we can't forget our history. Um, you know, especially with a history like this that was so racist-based, 
Um, I feel that we need to know where we came from so we don't repeat it in the future. And we have a tremendous amount of support um, from the Japanese-Canadian community, including individuals who experienced this in 1942, and they are behind us to save the station house. Okay, so how can we help? Well, so very exciting. Um, through the National Trust for Canada Next Grace Save campaign or competition, um, the Hope Station has been nominated as one of the t- 10 sites in the competition. So starting uh, on the 20th, uh, you have a chance to vote for your favorite historic site. Um, We're very excited that four out of those 10 sites are from BC, which is great for the province of British Columbia. So starting on the 20th, right to February 22nd, you can get online and vote right at the National Trust for Canada Next Great Save campaign. That would be wonderful if you could do that. And so you're up against some pretty stiff competition, even here in BC, aren't you? Yes. Uh, so it's, it's very humbling and exciting all at the same time. So we do have some tight competition and all worthy uh, of the award themselves. Uh, so bottom line is the historic site that receives the most votes um, by February 22nd wins the grand prize of $50,000. And that funding is to be used for the rehabilitation or you know, the restoration of the historic site. How big of a difference could this make then to getting that museum or that building restored? Um, in our case, um, we have engaged one of the top um, heritage architects in BC. So that's what we're planning to use. Uh, you know, if we win, that's what we're planning to use our funds towards. Um, but it's important. Uh, at this point, Hope does not have a museum. Uh, Hope has not had a museum for nearly three to four years. Um, so it's, it's very important to, to have uh, the station rehabilitated into the, the museum and visitor center and that heritage hub. Is Hope behind you on that? Is, is the council at Hope behind you? The, the council, uh, council, of Hope, um, council of Hope has been wonderful, uh, very supportive, very patient with us. Um, Mayor Peter Robb, who's now retired, has it was, it was been great. Uh, the current council has been very supportive. Um, it's been great since day one. Again, this is over a year and a half of negotiation, so it's, it's been a long process. All right, now for people who also just decided, like, you know, like me, who went, I did not know this history about Hope, where can we find out more about the Tashmi Museum? We have a Facebook page, so it's uh, Sunshine Valley Tashmi Museum, and our brand new website should be launched in the next couple of days. And then you will learn more, or you can learn more about uh, the Hope Station at the National Trust for Canada uh, Next Great Save website link. Listen, good luck. Oh, thank you. We're rooting for you, Ryan. Thank you so much. That's Ryan Allen, president of the Tashmi Historical Society, founder of the Tashmi Museum. Uh, They are deeply involved in trying to get the Hope Station uh, picked as the next Great Save winner. Now, the next Great Save is a competition that is run by the National Trust. It's a charitable organization where they offer up money, $50,000 in this case, to the winner of a competition where that building has historical significance and needs some financial help to be recognized, to be memorialized and saved. There's 10 buildings on this list. Four of them are from BC, places like the Duncan train station. And Duncan is also nominated. Um, 
places like the Forward House in Iroquois, Ontario is nominated, Rossland Drill Hall in Rossland, uh, the St. John's Stone Church in St. John, New Brunswick is also on this list, Turner House in Abbotsford, and yes, Hope Station in Hope. So the voting actually gets underway in four days. You can go online and check out all of the different buildings there. All you have to do is vote. And then one of these buildings will get $50,000 and it'll go a long way towards helping them, you know, restore that to the community. You know, a lot of people don't even know the history of what happened in Hope at the Hope Station there. So I think, yeah, definitely a worthwhile project. Now, they got in touch with me and said, can you help? This is our part. We're doing our part, letting you know about that. All you have to do is Google Next Great Save and you can find out all about how you can pitch in and help them out and cast your vote. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of stories in the news today about really one of the most popular players to ever suit up for the Vancouver Canucks. And we know that Gino Ojic, fan favorite, has passed away at the age of 52. He played 12 seasons in the NHL for the Canucks, for the Islanders, for the Flyers, for the Montreal Canadiens, passing away over the weekend. And you know what? We're hearing so many great stories about him we thought let's share some more of those joining us now is arthur griffiths former owner of the vancouver canucks member of the bc sports hall of fame thanks for being with us thanks jimmy how are you this morning i'm good thank you and you know what i think it helps to share these kinds of stories and i thought you you must have some that really stand out for you memories of gino ojic oh yeah absolutely over the years but even recently uh you know gino uh, as we know uh his prowess on the ice uh, his his ability to stand up and did stand up for the right thing and the players and making sure that his teammates were uh, number one. Um, we hear the legends with him and Powell, but then off the ice, you know, he was uh, uh, an individual that no matter where you went, uh, he reminds me of Pat Quinn this way. People will remember when they met uh, Gino, uh, where they where they met him, what he said. And even if it was just in the arena watching him play and hearing that which I can still hear it, uh, Gino, 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 and the uh, in the crowd, uh, which happened a couple of years back. The last time I heard it, he really did have a special connection with fans, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, we, we, you know, when you were on the road, sometimes uh, you know, visiting, you know, in an opponent's city, fans would come out, and although, albeit they didn't want him taking uh, taking on some of their players on the ice, uh, they were just absolutely uh, in in uh, in revered him. Uh, you know, within this indigenous community, as we know across this country, in particularly, you know, he advocated for so many, so many important pieces of, you know, and most recently, of course, reconciliation. But before that, education. And you know, Gino, uh, Gino had, uh, you know, a big man, uh, uh, big steps. But uh, like I said, uh, an icon in his community, but more importantly, an amazing human being off the ice as well as on the ice. And when did you know that? When did you realize that, hey, you know what, this, this player's pretty special? Well, I, I, I remember his first game, and they'd only had a couple of fights, and, uh, and, I, and I was reminded yesterday, of course, from Stan Smeal, but uh, in an interview, but it, to, to, to know that this guy just understood that that was what he was going to do, and the, 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 even Chicago, I think they were, which is who it was against, I think they were just going, oh, my goodness, what are we up to? What are we up against? Um, and, and his teammates... Absolutely. It, it, you know, there's this bond that the 94 group of players had. And, and, and Gino, is, Gino exemplifies that. They were a family. They are a family. Uh, they, they are all sad today, but cherishing his memories. And I think that, um, 
like I said, you know, he could he could walk into a room in any room, any any room, uh, whatever it may be, and uh, people just fell in love with him. And and he really had those special relationships too. You talk about the bond in that team, and I understand that like he and Pavel Bure were very very close friends. You know, there's the old TV uh, sitcom called the uh, the uh, uh, the Odd Couple. <laughs> Certainly, it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and uh, because you know, because one played a certain type of game, and one played another one. And uh, but my goodness me, that they worked together. You know, people always said you know Pavel was you know uh, you know stood up for Pavel. Pavel was a big player physically. I mean, he was a strong player, so he was physically tough. But at the end of the day, he gave Pavel some room from time to time, where someone you know maybe Gino wasn't even on the ice. He came on in another shift and. You know, just let that guy know that that's not going to happen again. And uh, and then off the ice, you know, you could see them, uh, you know, walking around, the, uh, you know, downtown Vancouver, uh, you know, coming to the game together on the road, hanging out together. It, it was it is it is. And it, and it was a special bond for sure. And uh, I, I'm I'm uh, I sent a note to uh, uh, I haven't heard back, but I did send a note to Pavel yesterday. And, uh, you know, and today today I think about his family. Uh, his immediate family. I think about his indigenous family, and I think about Peter, um, who Peter Leach, who uh, uh, has been at Gino's side for many years, and 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 through this terrible disease. Uh, you know, we always think about people fight. You know, they they said maybe five years, and here it was eight. So uh, he fought right to the end, and uh, is dearly missed, but uh, cherish the memories. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing some of those with us this morning. Thanks, Simi. My pleasure. That's Arthur Griffiths, former owner of the Vancouver Canucks, member of the BC Sports Hall of Fame, talking about his memories of Gino Ojik, who passed away on the weekend, the age of 52. Now, as Arthur mentioned there, it was back in 2014 that Gino Ojik went public with his diagnosis of a disease called amyloidosis. It's rare. It happens when a protein builds up in organs and it make those, makes those organs essentially not work properly. We're talking the heart, the kidneys, the liver, the spleen, the nervous system, digestive tract, you name it. Now, Gina Ojik being so amazing and so public with his struggles with this illness has done a lot to raise awareness of amyloidosis. And if you want to learn more, just go ahead, look online. But I know I think he would welcome the attention being paid to this illness because it is out there. It does happen. As Arthur Griffiths there mentioned too, uh, he was told the disease what would eventually kill him. They thought he had a couple of years and he made it eight years uh, you know what? And that was extraordinary in the amount of work. And the Canucks got a chance to honor him, too. He was there. And I think it was just so significant. He was such a popular Vancouver Canucks player. And I know there's going to be lots of talks and lots of stories told about him today for sure.